James, I really loved our interview with Elena today. I think our topic is excellent, of course, uh, yes. because it really gets down to the nitty gritty. But Elena is such a such a font of, of information and yeah. um, and advice. Yeah, so um, I think everybody's going to really appreciate this. Habits of highly effective ISOs and agents. And I think Elena is in an ideal position to give that advice because she has she works with so many through her wholesale ISO. Mm -hmm. um, then I talk about starting a business, payments business. And, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about my experience with CC Storage, but today I kind of break down how should you be thinking about it in terms of assumptions and objectives when you're mm -hmm. starting, whether it's, you know, a new vertical you're going to target, a new solution you're going to sell, a new software company you, you want to build, whatever. It doesn't matter if you're an individual agent or an ISO, give some advice on that. Um, and then right. Patty, tell us about the insiders today. Well, I do what I love to call my ISO metrics. Um, yes. A lot, lot of data on spending, which I think people are going to find some interesting tidbits in. And yep. our episode today is brought to you by ISOAMP. You can find out more by visiting the web at getisoamp.com. Let's go. So should we start? Yep, let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Elena Smith. How are you doing today, Elena? Great. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. The prolific Elena Smith. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. That's a good, that's a good word for it. So yeah, for those of you that uh, are living under a rock and you have not yet followed Elena Smith on LinkedIn, <laughs> make sure you do so. Uh, Elena is the CFO at Secure Bank Card, but I think a much better title at this point would be Thought Leader in Payments um, because Elena uh, really posts a lot of insightful things on LinkedIn, specifically for the ISO community. Um, we're going to talk today about habits of highly successful ISOs and agents. Uh, which I love uh, this idea of, you know, let's take best practices from everybody in the industry and, and talk about what those are. Um, before we dive into that, Elena, give our audience a little flavor for what your role is like today and what you're doing in the payments industry. Okay, sure. So uh, Secure Bank Card is a wholesale ISO. We started it about 12 years ago. Um, and we decided to do things a little differently. When we started this ISO, uh, my husband, Kevin, has been um, running and building this kind of, you know, wholesale ISO quite a bit. He has a lot of history in that. And when he did it this time, he wanted to do it uh, a little differently in that um, we would have more control over the process. We would have more control over our own destiny. So we mm -hmm. built our own platform so we can do our own billing. We can do our own uh, statement generation. We can do our own merchant funding. So we have a lot more control over the process than one that's kind of reseller or just, you know, getting these services from a TSIS or a Fiserv or some, right. someone like that. We actually are more control in the process. We share that control with our partners and in turn, their merchants. They all have a lot of visibility into what's going on. Um, it just works really well for our business model. Um, I've also, since I've got kind of dragged into payments at that time, you know, starting this business <laughs> with my, my background as uh, in finance. And I just have become absolutely hooked on payments. I love that it's constantly changing. I yeah. love that I'm learning something yeah. new every day. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I started, you know, doing content on LinkedIn. I didn't see the kind of content that I was looking to find. So I said, you know what? If it's not there, I'm going to do it myself. Love and it. let's yeah. just start. Let's start some conversations. Let's meet each other. Because it was also at a time, you know, during the pandemic, and um, you weren't able to network at the shows like you normally are. So right. um, mm -hmm. it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And I hope that fun kind of shines through when I do that. Yeah, it definitely does. Oh, it does. It does. Yeah, you sure. know, as a writer, I, I will, you know, as a professional writer, I will tell you that, you're, you know, when I read your things, it's like, wow, 
she did all this off the top of her head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, with me, it's like notes every place, and, you know, referring well, back I think to it's old also stuff. because I'm learning as I go and I try to those things that might be obvious to everyone else. Mm-hmm. I try to make it in a very straightforward, um, you know, way to understand, because I think a lot of the time we use the complexity of payments to intimidate and yes. kind of leave people out of the process. Right. And that's right. just not the way it should be. We should be sharing information and helping mm-hmm. lift each other up um, because when we're all successful, there's we're all happy and you know there's there's plenty of success to go around. The high is big enough for to us to around. share. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I've just never been one of those like step on everybody to move up kind of people. Um, and so I'm, I'm huge on information sharing and mentoring and helping others. And it's just, Love it's it. my very favorite format ever. Um, and I hope it never goes away because yeah, I love it great. so much. Honestly, yeah. I know that sounds really weird, but yeah, no, no, no it doesn't really sound weird at all. It. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, okay. So let's dive into our topic today, Elena. We're talking about habits of highly successful ISOs and agents and, you know, you came up with this topic idea as we were, uh, back and forth on LinkedIn and I love this one. And as I was thinking about it from my perspective and looking at your notes as well, one of the words that always kind of comes to my mind in this area is the idea of focus. Um, you know, to me, I see a lot of these pe- a lot of people in the industry where they're maybe not as successful, and usually it comes down to a lack of focus in one area or another. And those who are successful seem to have a pretty good laser focus on what they're going to do. So the first topic along those lines, in my mind at least, is the niche or kind of this vertical focus. So talk about what you're seeing successful ISOs and agents doing in this area of focusing on maybe specific business types or or whatnot. And, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's interesting because of the type of business that we have. Um, we are seeing a lot of different ISOs and agents, obviously. And it's right. just, it's very easy to see at times, what are they doing well for the ones that are, you know, boarding a lot of business and they're very successful and they're doing it easily and it's streamlined. What are the habits that they have that they're doing well? So that's the thing that when I speak about, you know, highly successful ISOs, it's not because I've started this kind of business myself. It's because I see it from the other side and what's Mm -hmm. working for them. Um, And before they get to a vertical, so before they decide on a vertical, I think before they even get to that point, they build their business with intention. So they Mm -hmm. decide, is this a lifestyle business? Because we all know plenty of those and that's fine. There's nothing against that. But they... They think about that before they even get heavy into this. Is it a lifestyle business or is it I'm going all in kind of business? Is it something that I'm passionate about? Is it something that I love to do? Don't pick a vertical that you don't enjoy being around those kinds of business owners. So they define their passion and they figure out what they really enjoy doing. Uh, They ask, what matters most to me? What are my core values? What am I going to stick to no matter what? And these are some pretty basic things, but a lot of people kind of just dive in head first and don't think about these things. And then they don't have that point of reference to come back to. Well, when I started, I kind of laid out the things that are important to me and what matters. um, And now I have no point of reference. I think they also think about their end goal. So is it uh, to exit at some point? Am I just going to build this up and sell it? Which nothing against that if that's what you want to do, but you need to think about that because that's going to be built a different way than something Mm -hmm. that is maybe a multi-generational business. And then they niche down, I think, and they don't try to sell to every opportunity that they come across um, because you'll spin a lot of wheels and waste a lot of time. When you niche down, 
they can work toward it and just kind of filter out all the distractions that they run into. It makes it a lot easier because again, you always have that point of reference you can come back to and said, this is my framework. This is my box. Is it in the box or is it outside of the box? Let me just refer it out or, you know, do something else with it because it's a distraction. You have to avoid those distractions and stay focused if you're going to be successful. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really great advice. I really like what I took down the notice. You know, I sometimes take down notes when I'm talking to folks like this. And I love the idea of where you said to build with intention. You know, because I think a lot of people do go into this business thinking, well, I'm just going to make a bunch of money. And, you know, and it, you know, there's not an intention behind that. And when there's not an intention behind it, uh, you may get a lot of, in my opinion, you may get a lot of sales, but they're not going to stick around. No, it's not sustainable. So I yeah. think that just that makes such a huge difference. And it's not a it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be a multi-day workshop. You just right. have to sit down and think about what is important to me and right. what am I planning to build instead of just starting to throw things up and it's all an income stream. And then like see what falls in place, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's okay. I think when you're um in the beginning, when you're trying to find something that you're really interested in and something mm -hmm. that you really feel a connection to. I think sure, for sales sure. agents, you know, especially as they start out and they're mm -hmm. just getting trained up on how to work. Um, and I think they could go into restaurants and they could go into retail and see what they, what solutions they love to place. What right. am I good at? Right. And what then works. you focus down once you figure out what you're really good at and what you're passionate about, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you want to go do? Right. 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 So. Explain to me, Elena, what are some of the other ways that you see ISOs and agents leveraging focus, you know, in their marketing efforts to target the right people, but not necessarily people, you know, not necessarily vertical specific? Right. I think they think in terms of one to many instead of adding one merchant at a time. And that can happen a lot of different ways. So one of the ways is they could have a relationship with a wholesaler or a trade organization. So I'm going to go to um, a wholesaler that specializes in a certain industry, or I'm going to go to a trade organization that specializes for a very specific niche. Um, they could have a relationship with an e-commerce developer, even better, a development group. Um, they uh -huh, could, yeah. I've seen a lot of uh, really successful agents start their own social media communities where it's a local area. So maybe they're focused on a local area and a certain kind of business and they start their own community. And then they're, 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 they're spreading their message to a lot of merchants at one time. It's, it's the sales part of it. And right. then it's also the, okay, now I'm, I know exactly who I'm serving and I can focus on serving them in exactly this way. And they can streamline their process a little bit. Um, also, we're, what we're seeing right now is the integration with software vendors, um, sure. for, and especially to a certain industry. That's a huge thing. So I think the steps are you define the niche. So figure out where it is that you want to be. Um, you understand your ideal customer in that niche. What do they look like? What are they, what are they looking to buy? What are the solutions they need? What are the problems they have? Where can you find the highest concentration of those customers in that niche? So you're going to one pond and you're fishing from that one pond to find them all. Um, you become deeply embedded in that place. And this is where relationships are everything. You form relationships in that place, wherever it's going to be. You're selling to many at that point instead of one. And then once you start to board the business, you create a process 
so that you're boarding it in a similar way every time. So if it's a, if it's very specific, you can even get specific about the pricing. So you're not having to, um, you know, create the pricing every single time because that's where a lot of errors happen or the boarding files. You can create templates for that. Streamline the process so that you can get this business up very quickly and with success so that you don't have the human error component um, and you can be successful and just the that's, that's your first impression. You want that to be right. So how can you make that as smooth as possible for them once you find where you're going to go get all those merchants? Yeah, I think it's interesting, Elena, because I think, you know, one of just the core concepts that um, people in our industry struggle with sometimes is that there's no escape from the fact that variation, you know, inevitably is going to be the enemy of efficiency. Right. So if you're trying to sell 15 different solutions to 25 different types of merchants, um, you know, you're not going to be able to hold all that in your head. You know, what settings are available, what features are available, which solution is right for which merchant, you know, um, which, you know, which platform are you going to board them on? How are you going to fill out the pricing? Right. There's all, so our industry is so complex anyway, that it sounds like what you're saying is by kind of focusing and, and, you know, in on a particular vertical or a particular kind of process, you can eliminate some of that variation and maybe do it more efficiently and provide a better experience. That's exactly it. Yeah, you nailed it. That's it. And at this point, there are just too many solutions out there. You can't possibly right. know all the solutions. So right. once you become an expert in one little area, no matter how you focus in on that area, then you can start to streamline and create a process right. so that you don't need all that variability in your yeah, process. Right, right. Love it. So, so once one of these ISOs or agents kind of gets their, their focus area of how they're going to go to market, then what do they do next as far as what are the successful ones doing in terms of setting goals, looking at metrics, looking at the numbers, which I know you're very passionate about. How does all that play into this as they start to, to scale up and, and grow their portfolio? Well, I think that the numbers, like you said, are one of the most um, overlooked parts of yeah. uh, running a business like this. And the other overlooked part is that we're not just measuring numbers, but we're measuring numbers that actually tie back to our goals. So thinking about right. what those goals were that we said in the beginning, our metrics should be tied to whatever those things are. And we're measuring that we are you know, achieving what we set out to achieve. So many people get caught up on the mid count, the processing volume. Um, and I those are great, um, but and they kind of kind of can measure overall. But how many of those merchants are you keeping? How long are you keeping them? Right. Are you spending more on those merchants? to get them than you actually make on them over the course of the time that you have them. And those are not hard metrics to track, but they can be life-changing for a business. And if you start tracking those, you'll find yourself holding yourself accountable to those and you know, honing in on where problems exist and being able to focus on them a little bit better. But again, I think they always need to be focused back on your overall goals if it's the exit, where what is what does that look like for you? What do you want that exit to be? What does that top line revenue need to be um, in order for you to get the number that you want? What does the net income need to be for you to get that number that you want? And that's another thing too is that I think that we so focus on overall revenue and we don't focus on the bottom half of that P and L where all the expenses mm -hmm. live. And there are so many times that you can save just as much money as you can make you know, going out there and hustling, you know how hard you go out to work for that money. Um, so you can save by honing in on where can we streamline? Where can we get more efficient? Is it in the boarding process? Do we have open accounts 
you know, still active that we're paying for account on file or any kind of fees or gateways that these are merchants that are no longer processing. That happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So just an overall uh, responsibility to manage that P&L, I think, and then, and then create your metrics that you want to track and keep track of those month after month and just stay on them consistently. Yeah, stay on them. I think that's a real key key point there. And like you said in the very beginning, Patty, is it sustainable? Yeah. Can you you're you're creating this revenue? Can you are you creating it in a way that you can sustain it? Because right. if it's it valuation that we're after, they're looking at recurring revenue. They are looking right. at, you know, how long are we keeping this revenue and can we see it month after month after month? Right, right. And then my next question, Elena, you you kind of touched on, but I wanted to sort of get a little more specific. You know, it, it, I find that in the payments industry, it's really easy to spread yourself thin. I mean, even on my side of the industry, you know, <laughs> um, you're trying to be everything to everyone. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that you see being, you know, occurring and some of the best practices in terms of time management? and focusing on your on on your opportunities. Well, I think that we come by this problem honestly because we're interacting with business owners, we're trying to help them solve a variety of their needs and we want to be helpful. Right. At the end of the day, we want to be their go-to resource and we want right. to be helpful. So it's very natural for them to ask for extra help for things like payroll and all these ancillary, you know, kind of payments adjacent mm-hmm. things but not directly payments. But I'm a huge believer in not being distracted by these things and staying focused on our core offering. I think of it like a like a garden, you know, like if you if you don't go out and manage the garden every day and you don't you know nurture the soil and pull the weeds and see what's happening with your garden in that very specific place, you know, in the, in that one part of your yard, it's not going to flourish. You have right. to spend, you've got to put your focus where you want the results. And so I'm very passionate about just staying focused on, you know, where you want the results to happen. So don't think of these, you know, other things as just, oh, it's but it's an extra income stream that I'm giving up. You're you're <laughs> losing focus by yeah, doing yeah. that. And it's costing you on the other side. As far as time management skills, I'm I don't I struggle with it myself. I wish I had some kind of secret to tell you, but I just try to stay aware of um, what ultimately, what am I trying to build here? What do I need to stay focused on? And as things come in that are a little outside of what we really do and what is our core offering, I try to be mindful of, is that part of our core offering or is uh, shopping for POS solutions for someone, probably not what a wholesale ISO needs to be right. doing. I want to put up MIDs. I want to process them efficiently and accurately every day. And that's what I need to be focused on. Once I start getting too far outside of that, I've lost my focus and it's not productive overall. Yeah, yeah, I see You know, that. one of the things I find too, Elena, um, you know, it's interesting for me just in the last week, um, I've made some like big changes with my schedule because I think what's interesting too is it's so easy to let your schedule drift away from your goals, you know? And, you know, it's like, I was looking at, you know, I went back and I keep a pretty good, uh, I have, so I have a book that I have at my desk and I keep track of my day and everything. And I just go back and I was looking at the last like month, you know, I, I was here um, a couple of nights ago and I'm like, looking back, I spent this time, I spent this time and I'm like, 
okay, like, what am I trying to accomplish? Like you just said, you know, and when you look at it in, invariably, I do that maybe once every six months, I should probably do it once a month, but it's like, whenever I do it, it's like, oh, it's only been six months. And yet somehow 40% of my time invariably is spent on things that are not accomplishing my goals. And then it's so hard to go cut. You just, I'm hmm. not going to do that. Right. And it's, I find it's very challenging. I think it helped. One thing that helps me is this, um, I think a lot of agents out there could really use a part-time assistant or somebody that yes. does, you know, just having the accountability of someone who works for you, you know, you don't work for them, but just the idea that there's a person whose job it is to manage your schedule. Like I have somebody that's going to run over here and open my door if I run late on this podcast and they're going to let me know, James, you have this next meeting you wanted to, you know, like just kind of like, and the idea of having to communicate with that person to say, what is going to be on my schedule? It makes you think about it. And so I don't know what you're, what it's like, it's tough. And they're probably holding you accountable a little bit to they it. Are, you know, 100%. like if they see things that are outside of what what are the norm, then right. what's this about? You know, like, like why, just somebody why, else why to answer to. This? Sometimes we're not honest with ourselves, I think. Yep. I agree. I always I have an expression. It's like, uh, well, that was two hours of my life. I'll never get back. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see that too often. I see right? that. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, I think the important thing is like everybody's going to have those experiences. I think it's like when you recognize the experience and you're willing to make the difficult decision because, they, you know, really what we're really talking about a lot of times is upsetting people. I mean, honestly, I think I think most of bad time management is about upsetting people. Sure, it's right. like people pleasers. Yeah, yeah I don't want this person to be upset with me. And and I mean, right. I fall into that trap as much as anybody else. And it's like, oh, I really want this person to like me, that person to like me. And you're like, well, wait a minute, though, I can't spend. 45 minutes, you know, a day trying to get this. No, 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 no. We can't do that. Like, hold on. You know what? Done. And then you, you gotta, you gotta regroup and say, okay, I got off track a little bit and be willing to, to change your schedule. Okay. So I had one last one for you, Elena. So as we think about this, um, concept of, of focus, um, you know, one thing that I find agents and ISOs tend to struggle with a bit is this idea of kind of shared objectives. So it's like, okay, they, they made the sale and then it's almost like what happens next? We're still, even though we're selling point of sale or, or whatever, integrated payments, we're still kind of in this standalone terminal world or mindset of like, I sold it. All right, I'm done. Move on. You know, um, how, talk about what you're seeing these agents do in terms of shared objectives with the merchant and how are they adapting to this new reality where payments is a bit more complex than it was? Like, how are they yeah. adapting? Yeah, I think that the most important thing here is that we have to think about selling uh, a little differently than we have in the past, because before it was just the terminal, before it's just a, you know, plug and play, place, whatever there. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a, now in this, in this time that we're in, that's not a very sticky experience right. with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we position ourselves a little differently and we focus on two different things, which are how do we save them time? Because as business owners, especially if we're talking about mom and pop kind of business owners, they are desperate to, like we were just talking about, manage their time. They are mm -hmm. you know, running on all cylinders and they're pulled in a million different directions. So how can we save them time if it's with the POS by helping them manage their business more efficiently? There's so many cool bells and whistles on these POSs that actually manage their business functions for them. Mm -hmm. So if we can do that for them, I think we're in a good position. The other thing that we can help them do is help them grow revenue with a lot of the tools that are out there. So the the engagement, uh, customer engagement kind of tools that are on a lot of these POS devices, and that those kinds of things help us form these um, sticky relationships with merchants 
And if we do that, I think that we're going to have more referrals than we know what to do with if we position ourselves um, in that way. And again, I also come back to operational efficiency because if we can do that, sure. um, we if we can give them like self-service options where they can get the the day-to-day things, it's kind of surprising to me that some of some merchants out there still don't have daily visibility into their batches, transactions, and deposits. And if it's true, I, I can't, it, that exists out there. Um, and everything that they need basically to be able to reconcile um, their daily business, um, then that frees up our time to be able to give them that white glove support that we want to give them, yeah. take away the mundane kind of tasks and build it in somehow so they can get what they need, they can get done what they need to get done. And then it frees us up so that when the phone is ringing, we have time to answer it. And we're not answering, yes, I see your batch that was $500 and it should have deposited on this date because they can actually go in and get it themselves. Right. People would people would rather not call. They would much yes. rather just be able to yes. see the information. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's like it's funny too, because I think a lot of people, it's like, um, oh, I provide really good support. I need to hire so many people. And it's like, well, you need to have enough people to cover the calls, but remember every call is kind of a failure from the beginning, right? That's like the way I look at it too. <laughs> I, like I I there is no one, there is no vendor today that I want to call. No one. Right. You know, right. I may have to call one of them because they didn't provide me the information I needed without calling them, but I don't if I have to call them, that's a problem. So anyway, I love that. So Elena, it's always such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I love your insights. You. Uh, we we need to get together again soon and cover some other topics. But um for right now, for those who want to learn more about you, want to learn more about Secure Bank Card, where would you send them? Okay. Uh, to learn more about Secure Bank Card, I would go to the website. It's securebankcard.bancard.com. Uh, um, and we've got some great, uh, you know, background on the company, how we came to be, what we try to do, and how we try to help. Um, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn, probably is the best place to find me. I do check the messages there. And um, I'll just also say that I love to post this content, but I love it even more when people actually engage with the content. Right. And um, start conversations. Even if you don't agree, it's okay. I love that actually, because it challenges me and I always end up learning something more. So it's not just about being on LinkedIn for the likes and the views. I love the conversations that start there. So find me on LinkedIn um, and let's talk about payments. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elaine. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. So our episode today is brought to you by ISOAMP. Remember to get ISOAMP.com, the leader in full service statement analysis. And Patty, I thought today I would talk about why do we call it full service statement analysis? Right. Okay. Right. Well, one of the stats that I find most interesting is that when it comes to statement analysis, the 80-20 rule applies. And what I mean by that is anybody who's analyzed a lot of statements, we get hundreds of statements a day, right? they will tell you that 80% of the work is taken up with the 20% of the statements that are the worst ones. Sure. What right. we've the actually found, read. yeah, but you know what we found actually, Patty, is the 80-20 rule actually doesn't define this business. It's oh. actually a 92-8 rule for us. Wow. 8% of the statements take us 92% of the human time. Okay. And so what that tells you is, when you think about automation, AI, all of these things, we leverage all of that. Uh, you know, right now, I think in the last two weeks, our percentage of fully automated has doubled in two weeks. Now that won't continue very many more times, but you know, we just rolled it out a few months ago. Sure. But you know, when it's fully automated, it's taking an average of two seconds. But what's interesting is 
there's all these other statements that we turn around in under like two minutes. Right. Because, you know, it's the first data statement. There was this one fee that we didn't know what it was. A human has to take a quick look at it and then we send it off, right? And what's interesting is we have competitors that will do, you know, 60, 70% of the statements, right? But here's what's interesting about that. How much time does that really save when it leaves you the 30% that are the ones that are complicated, the ones where there's data entry necessary, the ones where you don't know what something is, all of the complication is in the 8% of the statements that take right. forever. And in statement analysis, you still got to do it. Somebody's got to do it because you're trying to make a sale. What are you going to do? Just go back and say, we don't understand your statement. No, right. you're no. still going to do it. So what we found is, and what, one reason our clients love us so much is that we do those 30% of the statements that can't be fully automated. We have the human intervention that comes in and gets those done. And we do that for you. You never even know. We don't, we don't reach out to you and say, hey, just so you know, we're going to bill you extra because this statement took us 47 minutes. No, <laughs> we just say, if you send us a processing statement, we're going to do it. We're going to get it done. The better the quality of the scan, the if it's a native PDF or whatever, well, the faster our turnaround is going to be. Get it. Right. So that's that's in your interest to do that. But hey, you send us something and we can do it. We're going to do it, and we have humans that jump in and get those statements done as well. So remember that ninety-two-eight rule. Make sure you don't put yourself in a position where you're like, oh, we're going to do statement analysis, and all of a sudden you're using a tool where you have to do thirty percent of the statements or twenty percent or ten percent right. because. Those are going to be the ones that take you the most time. Let our team handle those because frankly, we've got the AI and we've got the tooling to be able to get even those done much, much faster than you could do them on your own. So head over to getisoamp.com, G-E-T-I-S-O-A-M-P.com and check it out. This is Questions from the Field brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, uh, today I want to talk in questions from the field, uh, actually a question from the CEO of, uh, of an ISO that I was just talking to uh, like an hour ago. Um, okay. And so it goes along, yeah, it goes along really well with a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about CC storage and my experience right. uh, you know, building that company. And so this particular CEO is also looking at building a software uh, solution. Okay. And um, his question was really more around, you know, how do you think about these businesses. And I've started so many now. Um, I have all these different businesses. Right. I'm in the process of launching another one in September that nobody even knows about yet. So it's like, I have all these different things going. And we were talking about, you know, how do you think about that? And, and you know, what are the keys to, to launching it successfully? And, right. um, you know, this goes for those of you that are doing a variety of things. What we just talked about with Elena, you know, you're, oh, wait, I need to focus on a vertical. Right? And it's like, well, but how do, where do I start? Like, how do I think about that? Right. Right. And what I believe is, is the, you know, a topic that's so important in business, probably in my opinion, the most important thing when you're starting a, a business is recognizing and understanding the assumptions that you're making about a particular business venture and then seeking to validate or invalidate each of those assumptions. So let me give a different example that maybe would be more relevant to the individual agent audience. All right. So Let's say that you sell, uh, let's say that you sell Clover, okay, to make a common example here. 
And so you sell Clover and let's say that you decide, you know what? I want to take this, this Clover device. I'm going to use the Clover Flex and I want to go sell home inspectors. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and again, I have no experience with it. Actually, my dad was a home inspector for years, but anyway, I don't know if this would be a good solution or not. So, you know, I, I'm just throwing something out there. So if you said, I'm going to go do that, right? Well, what do you need to do first? What you need to do first is you need to make a plan as Elena just talked about, but more importantly, in my opinion, or at least as important is what are the assumptions that are underlying your plan? Well, let's think about it, right? Number one you have the ability to get in contact with home inspectors. That's a very important assumption. If that assumption is false, you will fail, right? right That's an important right. one. Um, assumption number two, home inspectors are going to be willing to talk to you about different payment solutions. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Maybe, I have no idea. I've never tried to sell home inspectors. Maybe most home inspectors have some kind of association that they work with that provides a payment processing relationship and they would never consider canceling that. Right. So you talk to 10, 15 home inspectors and realize, well, I can get in contact with them, but they're not interested in discussing it. Well, you just disproved an assumption that makes your entire business idea a bad idea. So you now need to either sell the association or you need to move on to something else. Right. Well, right. let's, what happens when we get past that? Well, they're interested in discussing it. And it turns out because of whatever you're able to do with that Clover Flex device, it has the features that most home inspectors or at least some significant percentage are going to be happy with as a solution. Right. So maybe they're interested and they're willing to switch. But when you show them the feature set, they're like, oh, wait, I need these three features. And those are features you don't have. Well, now mm -hmm. you just invalidated an assumption and you go, well, I guess Cloverflex isn't the right solution. Maybe there's another solution I could do for these home inspectors. Right. Um, then the final one I would say in this particular one, if I was building this business, is I would say, what are my assumptions around the financial results? So yeah, how much is yeah. it going to cost me to get in contact with the home inspectors? How much time and money is it going to take for me to go through the sales process? And then what is the profitability going to be? Maybe the average home inspector only does like, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars a month in credit card processing volume. Mm, and sure. they're not willing to do dual pricing. And you're doing interchange plus 40 basis points and 10 cents on $2,000 in volume. And you're like, this is a waste of my time, right? Um, so so you got to think in terms of what are the assumptions then as you get into the business, the next thing that you have to do is very simple. And that is validate or invalidate the assumptions. That is your only goal. Right. Um, when, when we were, you know, going the bare bones version of CC storage, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, I had, we were spending a lot of money on marketing and sales, but I didn't actually even care. I don't even know if I was getting a sales report per se of like the exact number of sales and revenue and all that, because I didn't really care yet. What I was trying to validate was these assumptions of what are the features that we still need to build or do we have enough features? And when right. it's like, well, we don't have enough features. Okay, then what are the features that we need? We need a new set of assumptions. Now we have a new list and we assume that once this list of features is built, we're going to be able to go back to market in a big way and really be able to scale it up. And we've already run all the numbers on profitability and everything else. So right. you have to go to market and validate these. So how do you do that? I, one example I was telling the CEO I was talking to like an hour ago, um, there was a point in time where I wanted to do a, um, I want to either buy or build a software for auto repair shops because okay. I know a lot of auto repair shop owners in my area and I thought it'd be a good place to start. Now, this was about maybe uh, four or five years ago. And so I went out into my local market and I personally spoke to about 50 
auto repair shop owners. Now, bear in mind, I haven't paid $1 in development costs yet. I haven't spent $1 in marketing expenses. I just took my time for like a week and I went out and I talked to as many auto repair shop owners personally as I could. I spent like half a day each, each day for a week. And guess what I found out? I found out that auto repair shop owners are totally fine with their standalone terminal. Now this is four or five years ago, right? But at that time, they didn't want to switch to anything more fancy than that. And I'm like, well, what about email invoicing? Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, you could email the invoices out and they said, if people don't pay us, we keep their car. So right. we don't care about that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so it didn't take me very long. Like within that week, I was like, like this is a bad idea. Yeah. You know, why? Because now I could have just gone ahead and said, oh, I'm making these assumptions and they must be right. Because so I... let me build this software company. No, right. you start with the assumptions. And, and let me tell you something else. Even if you do this and you're amazing at it, you're still going to, there's still going to be assumptions that you didn't even realize you were making that were totally wrong. Mm -hmm. But you can minimize the pain <laughs> if you can identify whatever assumptions you can. And then again, go to work validating or invalidating those particular assumptions. So that's how I think about a new business venture is what are the assumptions I'm making? What is the quickest, cheapest way that I can validate or invalidate those assumptions and then maybe either abandon the business or say, okay, I need to adjust because there's now I'm making new assumptions. Let me validate those. And it's this process of identifying assumptions, validating assumptions back and forth, back and forth. Um, and that's how you develop a good business and, and build it from the ground up. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. You know, James, it's been a little bit of time since I uh, did what I call a data dump or what I really like to call isometrics. Yes, I know how you <laughs> love these, so I'm excited yeah. to hear it. Yeah, so I have a fresh trove of data, uh, compliments of PSCU, which is a big provider of backshop services for credit unions. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, bottom line, consumers are cautious about spending, but they do continue to increase spending, albeit at a less significant rate than a year ago. Okay. Certainly, though, better than 2020 and 20, you know, well, uh, yeah, right. the, you know the, the height of the pandemic. Sure. So here are some of the data points. Credit and debit card transaction numbers, the number of transactions, mm -hmm. are growing at a faster rate than dollars spent. That's interesting. So the average ticket size is dropping a little bit. It's dropping, right. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that so was for credit, credit and debit? Credit and debit. So I'm just going to go, you know, here, give yeah, you yeah. an idea. Credit purchases were up 3%. So the purchases, you know, uh, Debit was up 4% year over year for March. Okay. The average purchase amount for credit was 73.63, which is down 2.2% year over year. Wow. That's a big difference. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting. And then sure. average debit, debit purchase amount um, at 46.49 was down just 0.8%. So, which can be, you know, an easy fluctuation. Um, if sure. it's below 1%, I consider that within the realm of error. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, not surprisingly, growth in discretionary spending is slower, slowing at a greater rate than non, um, 
discretionary spending, you know, sure. groceries versus a trip to Bali. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yes. Uh, consumer price index has decreased on an annual basis in March from 6% to 5%, uh, which makes the ninth, ninth month in a row that the uh, CPI decreased, hmm. which is a good sign for people who are afraid of inflation. Sure. Okay. Digital payments defined as card not present, mobile wallets, and tokenized activity um, grew faster than card present payments uh, fueled by mobile wallets, e-commerce, and card on file activity. Here's the breakdown. Um, 48% of car credit card transactions were what they call digital. Hmm. And that that also equaled fifty eight percent of total spending. Oh, interesting. That I thought was really oh. interesting because you know you're doing. I mean, it's better. You know, I I think this is pretty close to the, if not the first, one of the first times that uh, that card not present has exceeded card present in terms of of dollar volumes. Mm, wow. Yeah, that is. And well, I guess the other interesting thing there. I could almost kind of see that of like, if you're, if you're card present, you know, you're, you're much more likely to make a small purchase card present. Agreed. Agreed. And you are card you know, not I, present. So that makes sense that it would be a larger share of the volume while the transactions share wouldn't be as much because it'd be an, a higher average ticket card not present. Right. Right. And you know, like I, I, I can attest to this myself, um, you know, I'm, in the last couple, in the last month or so, I've had to buy two or three pretty substantial sized yard tools you know yeah, a, sure. a, a chipper and a, a leaf blower and stuff like that right okay i could have gone out to home depot and bought them but it was so much easier to go online order them and have somebody bring it bring to them. me Absolutely. so i didn't have to you know figure out a way to carry this to my truck and then into my house right. so you know right. i think you're right about you know big ticket spending yeah. um okay um uh, 37% of debit transactions were CNP. Mm -hmm. um, and it was about half of spending. Okay. So once okay. again, higher average ticket size, card average present, ticket, card yeah. present. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, average digital payment using credit was 93.13. Wow. And that was the average purchase for credit overall right. was 73. Right. So that's a pretty substantial yeah. difference. Yeah. And uh, debit card uh, average digital payment was $37. Hmm. Um, and then when it comes to the one last thing that I, and I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, but when it comes to mobile wallets, Apple maintains a dominant share of both de debit and credit transactions. Hmm. And, you know, I read a really interesting article the other day about why Apple is so dominant. Um and, you know, it really has to do, and, I, and I'm not sure if you and I spoke about this or or I've had this, discuss, this discussion this week, sure. but it was when Apple really tried to like streamline what it was offering. Yeah, well, of course, because they can, they, they're, right. because they have the software and the hardware. Right. You know, and it's like, let's face I, it, they're it, the uh, only wallet that charges banks for, for accepting their cards. Yeah, I was a little know? surprised by that, actually. What was it? Uh, is it a two base? I've always been surprised by that. I think it was a two basis points, I think. Well, I just yeah, read I believe it's two basis points, yeah. Yeah. And I and I think what's interesting about it is, you know, 
the banks, and I was reading, a, I read a really interesting article about this the other day and how the banks are kind of scared of Apple. Yes, because, might be the same article I've read. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think it's so interesting because it's kind of like, you know, the banks that are paying in order for their customers to be able to use Apple Pay, to use their card in Apple Pay. But at the same time, that's developing this consumer behavior of just right. pay with my my app, my I'm iPhone. I'm just going to use my Apple app. And so then Apple, they already have their own credit card. Eventually, it's like, what do I need Wells Fargo for if I can just use the Apple card and exactly, you know, and different benefits and things like that. But I think it's um, I remember Steve Jobs a long time ago said um, companies who are serious about software make their own hardware. Mm. And uh, that that. I think in a word kind of defines Apple's big advantage is that, you know, when you look at Android, yeah. it's like, well, Apple, you know, you, you know, Google can't come out with necessarily, they have their Google wallet, but is it going to work in every situation? Is it going to be a smooth customer experience? Well, right. there's all these different screen sizes and all these different phones and all these different softwares and, you know, that they support. Whereas Apple's like, well, we got the iPhone, we got the Apple watch yep. and uh, that's it. You know, just use your Apple pay. So it's, I use it all the time now. It's funny. I mean, I I would say I probably pay with Apple Pay right now. I would say 50% of my in-person purchases, I use Apple Pay now. I was um, having dinner with a young person, you know, somebody younger than me, about your age probably, sure. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she was like, oh, let me pay. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, let me do the tip. You know, at right. least let me do. She's like, oh, that's great. Because when I pay with my watch, adding the tip is such a hassle. Right, right. Right. But it was like, and so I watched her and she goes over to the, you know, to the, to the owner right. of the restaurant. It was a small restaurant, goes over to the owner. He hands her, you know, a little device. She taps her watch on it and she right. walks away. And then she comes back and, to the table and she scrolls on her phone to make sure the transaction went through. Yep. I was like, yep. wow. It's just very seamless. You know, seamless. I don't do, I, I've gotten into watches lately, so I don't, I don't do the Apple watch anymore, but right, I, do, right. I do have one. Um, but, but yeah, I, I you do. Yeah, but I I love it. I think it's just such a convenient solution. And you know what's interesting to me about it is I actually like Apple Pay more for card not present than I do for card present. You know, card, really? card present, it's a little bit more convenient because it's because you're, it's, it's stupid, but it's like your phone's in your front pocket and you usually have your phone in your hand already. Right. So it's it's just a little easier than, than reaching for the card, but you got tapped to pay on the card. So it's not that big of a deal. Right. But when it's a card not present environment, it's the difference between typing out your name, phone number, and address versus double tapping a button on the side of your phone. So I won't oh. even shop online if you don't take Apple Pay because I'm not going to sit here and type out my address, my phone number, my email. I mean, unless I really, really want something, right? I won't do it. But but I love it because I'll go through, um, uh, you know, like Municipal is one of the clothing brands that I like. And so I buy t-shirts or whatever, depending on the season. And I love it because I can go in there pick what I want. And then I just go to the shopping cart and tap Apple pay, double tap the side. And it just puts my address in my, all my information pays the thing and it takes two seconds and it's done. And so that to me is such a streamlined experience that I think they're going to continue to see a lot of, because, you know, because again, and, the, and you know, it's just, it's similar to PayPal. I use PayPal yeah, right. all the time for my online shopping because yes. I just say pay with PayPal they put in all the information and I just walk away. Right. But you know, it's funny. I used to do that too. But then the other thing for me is when I'm doing it with PayPal, usually I still have to log in or there's at least one or two extra steps. One extra step, maybe two extra steps. Yeah. Be, and the reason is because PayPal doesn't own the device you're on. So they don't right. know for sure it's you. They have to validate your identity. Whereas right. because of Face ID, 
right? Uh, you sure. know, Apple Pay knows it's you, and so it's great. So anyway, but yeah, super interesting uh, stats. The free, I always appreciate you sharing those. It always gets my mind, you know, turning with ideas. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.